Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Welcome to the broadcast. I am talking today with Josh Nuremberg, chef owner of Bin 707 Food Bar, Taco Party, Dinner Party in Grand Junction. What's going on, Josh? No, not so much. How's it going? Happy to be here. Great to have you on. Great to have you on. I want to tell people just a little bit about you. Uh, not the usual, where you came up and all that, but uh, some fun, fun facts about you. So you are a Denver native, so Colorado's been your scene since the get. I uh, love that your first job was at Old Chicago here, and I know that Frank and his team have been really important to the, the, the Denver scene, and he's got the crafted concepts now in Old Chicago. You know, it's easy to make fun of, but I remember that part of my career kind of started there when I was going to culinary school in Iowa, working for my uncles out there, I was drinking beer there because I was like, what's this craft beer thing? And so I was at Old Chicago three days a week getting my education because, you know, I'm a college kid, so I got to drink, but I also got to get, you know, wised up on craft beer. So I love that Old Chicago connection for sure. We got that love of Asian food. You got the Toban John black bean sauce is always a food staple item of yours. Uh, what are you cooking with that? Yeah, that's just condiment. That's our that's a, that's our hot sauce. That's our mommy. That's our flavor. I mean, that's just it hides in the fridge. It's it always goes on there. everything. Goes yeah. on everything. I love it. And you are a lifelong skateboarder. I just saw a video of you, man, like uh, wrecking up a, a park. Uh, I think that's <laughs> I think that's huge, man. We're about to date ourselves, but in 1993, I got my first ever skinny little. I think it was plastic, man, skateboard that my buddy Sam Phillips is like, hey, you should try riding a skateboard. And then as soon as you learn how to ride a skateboard, get rid of it because somebody's going to kick your ass for having that. <laughs> New school uh -huh. boards were j just coming around. My first board was a penny flip board. Uh, Love it. The one who's got the crazy hair, you know, the cartoon. Yep. I, and growing up in Southern California, you know, I mean, you know, I'm, Carlsbad Gap is like 20 minutes from my house. And we were at Roosevelt Middle School and Leap of Faith and – Man, I remember skating with, like, you know, Chad Muska when the Shorties team started and stuff like that. When I wow, that's skated, incredible. When I say skated, I would do a kickflip, uh, you know, like <laughs> off, of three, off of three stairs while they were doing, you know, uh, Jamie Thomas is doing Leap of Faith and stuff. But it was, man, the culture. Like, talk Yo, to me about that. Uh, man, hey, man. What a culture that was. Like, what does skateboarding mean to you? And especially now that you're still doing it, and uh and i like that it seems like a positive outlet which us chefs don't have enough of so what did skateboard and especially what does skateboarding still mean to you as a, you know, as a chef today? it's it's uh it's it's kind of representative of a lot of things that we do in the kitchen but you know really what it is is it's uh it's kind of independent thinking that promotes independent thinking i've been skating since the early 80s like 84 ish i'd like to say somewhere in that ballpark um, got a skateboard for a Christmas present from a friend of a friend that was in the industry. Um, 
I had no idea it was coming. I was, you know, I was in elementary school and I kind of grew up with it. And then by middle school, high school, I had sponsorships. By late teens, I had kind of given up on skateboarding, was snowboarding full time, trying to follow a career in snowboarding. Found skateboarding again mid 20s and probably skated more between 25 and 35 than I did between 10 and 20. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's just representative of, of freedom of expression and kind of independent thinking for how you um, kind of look at what's presented to you, whether it's a curb or a bank or what have you, so that you can sort of express. Um, yeah, the, lo- the line that artistic. you create for yourself is complete creative expression, right? Like, That's absolutely anything so, you see. It could be a place to skate. I, I love that. That's and that's what you're creating in the kitchen for yourself now. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't think that the the two are definitely related. But even on the bigger picture, I think the restaurant business and in, in, in a whole. You know, if you look at a restaurant, and I suppose more so from the idea of a concept. If you look at a restaurant from the outside in, it's it's it the entire thing is designed. You know, the bar is designed, the front door is designed, the menu is designed, the menu font is designed, the ambiance is designed. All of that is ultimately the expression of whoever's doing that design. And, and you know, for me, that all starts from skateboarding, skateboarding to art, art turned to graphic design in college, that turned to industrial design in college. Um, ultimately, it's really been this artistic outlook that has essentially turned itself into a career that is you know the restaurant business which is being a chef cooking creating dishes all right josh so we like to start off with we call a best served on icebreaker little game and knowing you and how important agriculture is in the state of colorado how that is the bedrock from which you and your chefs build everything every experience every flavor every ingredient every technique around those agricultural products i've seen firsthand the connection you have with your farmers so we're going to play a little game called centennial state of mind (laughs) right i'm going to ask you three questions give you multiple choice answers so we can learn a little bit more about the agricultural state of things in the state of colorado sound good sounds great all right so we had to start big start at the top the top agricultural production in the state of Colorado is coming from A, tree nuts, B, livestock, or C, wheat? Ooh, I would have to say wheat. Livestock. I was... Yeah, I, I can was, see that. I was so unbelievably shocked when I saw the number. 60% of the production on the agricultural side in the state of Colorado comes from livestock products you, you know though jensen i'll bet you that's an interesting question is that 60 percent revenue or 60 percent uh acreage or you know what's that number right that's the dig deep uh 60 is the is the is the revenue number so it's interesting yeah, that makes exactly sense. that how much land is taken yeah. versus what the total production wheat is very very high tree nuts is a uh it's, there's no tree nuts <laughs> nope <laughs> that's the that's the free uh one so it's basically between livestock and wheat the other, uh, the other products up there, corn and corn products, and that's always an interesting thing. So does that mean Olathe sweet corn? Definitely not. That is a microscopic amount of the corn products that are produced, which is very interesting to see that. But yeah, livestock is, uh, is a huge volume of the numbers. And, you know, having seen the, 
the Western stock show and some of that, maybe that's not that surprising. It was surprising to me when I first saw that though. Yep. All right. Uh, fruits, well-known state for fruit in Colorado, the top fruit crop, a apples, B cherries or C peaches. Uh, again, are we talking about revenue or acreage revenue? Probably. Yeah. The revenue numbers. Yeah. Oh boy. That's a tough one. Um, there's probably more acreage of apples. Peaches are definitely more valuable with a shorter harvest season. Um, I mean, you nailed it. Yeah, that, yes. Both the right answers. And it's actually interesting, both in acreage and in revenues over the years, they've kind of gone back and forth between apples and peaches. Uh, yeah, certain is that right? times, yeah, certain times they've kind of gone up and down, uh, weather and different harvest issues, things like that market trends so they're they're pretty on par the peaches and the apples but very fascinating because again you think about marketing and this is another layer that i looked at the marketing spend on peaches versus apples is exponential peaches get a lot of love apples not so much so i wasn't aware of the volume of apple production which clearly you were that's why that's why you're the guy you know (laughs) and apples are everywhere they're everywhere yeah they are in the top uh, consumed food products in the country. It's crazy. All right, so wine. Wine is uh, is in its infancy in Colorado, but there are 150 licenses in the state of Colorado. That number was uh, higher than I thought it was. And a lot of it is out there on the Western Slope with you in the Palisade area. The annual case production, this is the number of total cases produced annually, in Colorado is A, 20,000, B, 100,000, or C, 180,000 cases produced annually? Ooh, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm going to guess 180. I had no idea either. This was like grasp in the dark. You got it. 180,000 cases. That's a decent production. $36 million in revenue annually from wine production. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've got two separate AVAs here between Grand Valley and, and West Elks within, you know, 30 minutes of the restaurants. And as you said, with all the different winery licenses, it's not that much of a surprise that we're doing that kind of volume. And it's probably growing significantly because there's more and more, you know, sites being planted every season and more and more grapes coming on every harvest. So yeah, I think it's, that's probably on the low tier of what it will be in the next five years. Couldn't agree more. And you layer on, Beer production, a lot of the uh, products like the wheat that goes into rye. There's quite a bit of rye. I was surprised to see how much rye is grown here in the state of Colorado. Uh, There's quite a bit of agricultural products coming out of the state. You know, you hear about California, you hear about Florida, you hear about Idaho potatoes and Michigan apples, things like that. Your work is important to bring more and more awareness to small farmers, to the products being produced here. And to, to build up those revenue numbers because they, they're there and they have room to grow. So appreciate the work that you're doing. And that was a fun little game. Let's talk about where that spark really started, right? You're in Denver. You're starting to cook. Who was it that, that pushed you, that inspired you, that got you into this crazy fucking industry, man? <laughs> well, like you said, I started in Old Chicago, downtown on Market Street. In the early 90s, there used to be a line around the corner of that restaurant that was before Lodo was Lodo, it was, it was its own thing. And that was just exciting. 
Um, around that time, the Larimer Group still owned and operated all their restaurants. So my second through probably fifth job was with the Larimer Group. Um, I mentioned I, I spent a lot of time snowboarding. I was following a career in snowboarding. But one, somehow or another, I ended up uh, trying to find the better and better restaurants, being more and more interested in them. I found my way over to restaurant Kevin Taylor. I got a job at Bistro Juju, worked up through Bistro Juju and Palettes at the Art Museum and the restaurant Kevin Taylor. I met Sean Yachts there. Um, Sean left Kevin Taylor to open Tamayo. Uh, I went with him to help him open that restaurant and every restaurant he opened from the time, from Tamayo until I think the time he left Denver, I had a hand in, in opening with him. So really, Sean was a huge motivator and spark. Um, so the interesting part of that though, is I cooked until I worked for Kevin Taylor. And then when I worked for Kevin Taylor, I, I went into the front of the house. So I was managing all the front of house things for Sean. And I, I learned more about cooking and discipline and technique from Sean than I did from anybody else in my culinary career by far. That's, that's amazing. Uh, it's funny, uh, the, all these overlaying storylines here. So my first job here was working for Kevin Taylor. I rolled out a new menu restaurant, Kevin Taylor, then at Prima, and then I ran the opera house for almost two years. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's like all roads lead through Kevin Taylor. And I remember then <laughs> w- when I left there and started, opened up Tag with Troy, cooking with Sean quite a few times. Yeah. And, and talking to him and drinking mezcal with that guy. Let me tell you, that's, you know, careful what you get yourself into, drinking mezcal <laughs> with Sean Yance. Uh-huh. And... And I mean, we wouldn't have, let's talk about Sean a little bit. We wouldn't have a lot of the, uh, the Lola's and some of the, the modern Mexican that's, it's hot here and everywhere. Uh, without Sean Yance was like a real champion for that and, and opening Tamayo and just everything he did for quite a few years. And when I knew him, we were like really focused on that. What was that drive and how did that rub off on you? Well, you know, I, he, he, the way Sean went and probably still does um, went about, you know, anything that he put on the menu or his, his kind of culinary signature was things that he wanted to cook mixed with, you know, the highest tier French technique you could possibly imagine. So Tamayo was sort of the bright fusion of that, but that led into, I don't know if you remember Vega, but Vega was the restaurant that we opened shortly after Tamayo opened, which was uh, – you know, super high-end prefix menus, uh, really unique, especially at the time, um, uh, Spanish wine list. You know, we were doing essentially uh, super contemporary, modern Mexican and Spanish-influenced cuisine at like five and six-course prefix menus in the suburbs of downtown Denver in like 2003. You know, the, nobody had time. seen anything like that at that time. And needless to yeah. say, it didn't last long, but it was, it was uh, you know, it was perfectly executed. And it was just, it was shooting so far out of the rafters. Like 2003, Denver was not, didn't, Denver didn't have any kind of a national culinary attention anywhere close to it does now. Um, you know, then we were just trying, I think everybody was just trying to do something that they wanted to do. And create some local recognition national recognition wasn't even something that anybody was looking at you guys are the wild wild west Uh, when i got here in 2007 it was still like starting to really blast off and emerge but still there was a lot of us that needed to basically shape and form it because it was so malleable at the time and Denver never had the 
you go to New Orleans, you you eat etouffee and get beignet, right? There's maybe still not. And I think in a second here, maybe we segue right into you getting a wild hair up your ass saying, I need to get the fuck out of Denver <laughs> and, and, and going, sure, Grand Junction, there's a lot happening there. Uh, and, and you've worked a lot on trying to understand and define what it means to, to cook Colorado cuisine. And so talk to me about that move and, and who was instrumental in, in kicking your ass out of Denver or saying, hey, it's, it's time for something new. Yeah, you bet. Well, so my wife and I, we met um, at a steakhouse in Cherry Creek North. It was called Bob's Steak and Chop House. It opened across the street from Elway's at about the same time. Um, I was, we were in the process of opening Chama in Belmar um, with kind of between restaurants with, with uh, Sean Yance and that whole team. And we were behind on, um, on getting Chama built and open. So that essentially forced my hand. I got a job for six months at Bob's Steak and Chop House, met my wife there, you know, we started dating. Fast forward a handful of years, we had an opportunity to move back to Grand Junction. Um, my wife is a realtor and her father owned some properties here, including the restaurant that he wanted to, to sell. So we came here for, it was supposed to be two years in 2007 to manage this restaurant and keep it, keep it operating while we listed it and tried to sell it. 2009, the economy crashed. Um, Grand Junction was all oil and gas. Uh, all that oil and gas pulled out of Grand Junction and it hit Grand Junction really hard. But in the meantime, you know, I went back to Denver. I spoke with Sean at the time. Sean and Jesse Morreale were partners. We talked to what that would look like if I was going to come back and work with those guys. We looked in Fort Collins at real estate to open a restaurant there. Ultimately, we saw this idea that I don't think either one of us had, had um, you know, really considered, but I think that both of us really saw this idea and, you know, Jody sort of said, why don't we just stay here? And I, I started to look around. I said, we've got wine. We've got, you know, we're in the middle of Colorado's wine country. There's a couple of distilleries, a couple of breweries. Access to produce is unheard of. You know, we kind of have everything we need. So in 2009, the, we formed the idea to open this restaurant using as much of this local products as we can. Um, we opened in that location that, that, you know, needless to say, we couldn't sell in the middle of the down economy. Um, and we ran it there for a little while, but it, it wasn't the right location for us. So we looked for the right location in Grand Junction. So we opened in 707 Food Bar in 2011 um, with this completely different outlook on any restaurant that I was familiar with at the time. I wanted to open something that was completely driven for service industry people. I don't know why I thought that would be a good idea. <laughs> Not that there are a lot of restaurants here, but they don't have any money. Well, sure. I mean, you know, we were just going to do honest cooking with ingredients that were close by us. We figured in doing so that was going to continue to develop relationships those relationships would hold, hopefully support the restaurant. We could use it as a way to rebuild the economy and just do this like local ethos long before anybody was talking about sourcing local or Colorado cuisine or anything else. Right. 
it's, it's it's brilliant. Let me let me let me tell everybody who's listening. Uh, give you some shout outs. Like your restaurant is one of the most thoughtfully curated restaurants I've seen anywhere. And I travel all over the country, man. And like it's my job to eat and drink. It's a hard job, but I take it very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and well, thanks. I appreciate it. And I remember coming out to wine country when I was a chef at Real Fourteen. We're like we're gonna do some Colorado wines and drag the owner out there. Who's this, you know, enophile and and thought he knew all about wine and he did. And I was like, you know what? Like, let's get out there. Let's go check it out. And we came out there, we had dinner there, and I was like, what the fuck is this place? Like, this is crazy. Grand Junction, let me tell you, this is now six, seven years ago, even over maybe two years, two and a half years, something like that, I think it was. And uh-huh. there's not a lot happening in Grand Junction, man. And yeah, there was to go to this restaurant. It was it was a it was a trip. It was like, and now having gone back several times, I think you guys had such a good foundation, and that was key. And you've built on that exponentially, and we'll get into that a little bit more and what you guys are doing today. But because you had that strong foundation, you were able to build and build and build versus keep redirect, 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 which happens over time with restaurants. And I tell people this often, you know, like that if Ben Seven seven was in Denver it'd be a top five restaurant like no doubt like and that is that is something serious to say that you had the wherewithal man to like fucking make it happen anywhere like let alone in Grand Junction where it's seemingly outside of everything else I've seen there now people are coming out there now there's other restaurants and other chefs and things emerging so I had to give a quick shout out to that because if people haven't been there they just don't know Oh, I mean, get their fucking asses out there for sure. Make the pilgrimage a hundred percent. So you guys have this crazy idea. You get into this space. You and Jody are like, we're going to make it happen one way or the other. You're committed to a sense of place, supporting your community. I've gone to farmers with you. The relationship is real. Like that is very, very clear. You trust them. They trust you. And so they're giving you stuff that, man, it's, it's better than what I see in top restaurants, again, in a lot of places in the country, the ingredients that you're playing with. So then fast forward now, you, you, you made it happen. You're there. You're opening up multiple other restaurants. Now tell me about who it is today that is keeping you inspired, motivated, keeping you from pulling your fucking hair out. Man, I'll tell you what, it's, it's such an easy answer. It's, it's not a person, it's a team. And, Amen. you know, there was a, I saw a quote the other day on, on one of the, I think, Denver restaurant community threads, and it was something along the lines of, wouldn't it be great for a restaurant that you couldn't tell who the leader was? And, it, I, you know, it resonated true. I say that all, all the time, but I think that that's how, the way Ben 707 Food Bar operates. I don't think that it would be perceivable for – somebody in the industry to go in and have dinner and figure out who was running that kitchen or who was running that floor because it's a team and it takes the entire team to make it work. But, you know, in particular, we've got a a kind of short list, you know, Danielle Henricks has been the chef de cuisine, sous chef, line cook, you name it, every position there is in the kitchen since 2012. She's the glue. Um, Nakia Gray has been also there since 2012. He's lead production, so he runs a production team. And I mean, 
as you said it, everything that we bring in, we're bringing in as local as it gets. So the amount, like we're just getting through plum season right now. <laughs> it's an exciting time that you can start to see the walls through the walk-in because the 300 pounds of plums that we processed last week are starting to, you know, starting to be taken care of and not have to fight through that. But you know, those you guys, kinds of things are. Yeah. Yeah. You guys commitment to those ingredients it's man it's cumbersome right like that level of commitment is fundamental for you guys so you're bringing in 300 pounds and and hand pitting 300 pounds of plums the level of of dedication has to be fucking like in your dna to do you that know, it totally is it's that's and that again it goes back to the team but that team is so strong we all know what those seasons look like and know that it's coming but it's you know, we're open for lunch and dinner seven days a week. We've been in that place since 2011. Those, the farmers, the products on those farms, they get better and better, but they ultimately are the same products. So well, the only thing that's happening is we are serving more and more people and just trying to get more and more organized and efficient. You know, that's, that's more than I'd ever be able to do it by myself for sure. And, and so how do you, two things, how do you have them so excited to pit 300 pounds of plums? Because I've seen you guys <laughs> fabricating and breaking down produce, and it's not like a chore. It's not like you got stuck shucking fava beans because you were late or because you're the commie or because you're getting hazed. It's like they are pumped to be breaking down 300 pounds of plums, first off. And then just macro, how do you keep a team so cohesive to have those people in those anchor positions since 2012. I know people that can't keep people in anchor positions for 12 days, 12 months, <laughs> let alone since 2012. So, so you're doing, you got something going there. And, and I know that it's, you give a shit about your people, but let's expound upon that. So first off the smaller micro, how the hell do you get them so excited about breaking down produce at the scale you do and then what does that mean as far as the culture you've cultivated there as a whole <laughs> well for the, for the micro it's it's a pretty easy negotiation when you know we look at what's coming this year this year we decided we weren't going to mess with cherries if you imagine what 300 pounds of plums look like on a weekly basis for five or six weeks compared to what 300 pounds of cherries look like there's a lot less pits so this year we forego the cherries. We've invested almost fully into those plums, peaches, etc. But it's turned into something that everybody knows how they're handled. So we can all bang them out together and just get through them. It's not necessarily any more difficult than anything else. And, you know, the product of these plums I keep talking about, these elephant heart plums, it's a, for instance, it's a slow food arc of taste item. They're so good. Every third plum is probably going in somebody's mouth. I mean, they're that's insane. A good, that's, a, that's a good investment in people, though. They're happy. Like, they're happy. They're happy yeah. to be doing a job that the, seems mundane. Well, and then on the macro level, and this is, this is the bigger picture, you know, I spent, I don't know, 15, 20 years in the restaurant business in Denver in a super competitive, you know, in a super competitive market that had a two, three, four-year turnaround per restaurant the one thing that was probably the most lucrative to Jody and I, when we were looking at doing something here in the grand Valley is that we can do this for ourselves and ultimately have decided it's what we want to be doing. 
if we want to do that and create a quality of life for us to want to be inside of those restaurants doing those jobs, it's important that we need to make, make it that way for everybody there. So the quality of life, our pay scales, you know, the, 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 the policies that we have in place, the, for instance, my salary team in policy is uh, on the maximum workload is 45 to 50 hours a week. And those salaries are greater than what most of the people in Denver are working on, on their salaries for the same jobs. You know, and, that type of an environment. Of yeah. That, that, so much higher in Denver and they're working 65, 70 hours. Right. Yep. And you know, and ultimately what it comes down to is, is real estate. We don't have Denver real estate. So what we can take advantage of in the lack of real estate, we're putting right back into the employees, right back into the restaurant. Those, what does it mean those for you to invest in those it, people? It's everything. Like, I mean, it's yeah. you know, we we wanted to create, we wanted to create a team, and we wanted to create culture. We wanted to create something that we could be proud of in our community, and that can be kind of a showcase of the community and a sense of place. And the, all of those, you know, all of this is informed as it's not this marketing ploy that we're trying to do Colorado cuisine. Ultimately, it is let's be proud of where we are and let's showcase that. And then that turns into while we're showcasing that, how can we be more unique than the guy next door or the guy down the street or the guy in Denver or the guy in LA, right? Then it turns into how can we be unique to us, total sense of place just on us, cuisine focused on us. And the, the, all of those things are a factor. It's not just the mission of, you know, Jody or myself or ideas that we have of what something needs to look like. It needs to be something that what can we as a team execute, want to execute, focus our energy in, you know, put our interests into to be able to create our menu. Yeah. It's a reflection of, of your team as a whole. And that definitely resonates and, and people take a level of ownership and, and pride in it. And I think that's, that's been noticeable every time. Well, having been to your restaurant, having been to your restaurant, it's, it's, palpable there and then also having done quite a few events with you it it leaves your four walls which can be very challenging as well to like sustain that culture when you're in different environments you know and going to the beard house or doing denver food and wine or whatever it might be so i love that let's let's talk a little bit about something near and dear to our hearts fermentation uh total fermentation nerds you have to be really good at fermentation to to find ways to do things over an extended period of time with 300 pounds of plums. Let's talk a little <laughs> bit. And so let's talk a little bit about Ryan, Ryan Sylvester and like what he's meant. Cause I know he's really leading the way in a lot of that and allowing you the freedom to play. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ryan's been so key. Ryan and Kia both. Um, you know, I, I would consider myself one of the nerdiest people I know when it comes to food. And both of those guys are me times 10 when it comes to, you know, geeking out on something, um, you know, but back to what I was saying about this whole idea of Colorado cuisine, you know, I'm going to, uh, let me tie this in on, on sort of an evolution. Please do. You, yeah. you know, Colorado's young. The United States are young. We don't necessarily have defined cuisine. I think that we still have the ability to define what those cuisines are, you know, another hundred years from now, we'll probably still be talking about green chili, but hopefully we'll be talking about, uh, you know, maybe a Japanese preservation technique for those plums 
um, that's, you know, a fermentation to be able to take that harvest and keep it on the menu year round. But if you date back to when we started 10 years ago, everybody was pickling everything. And it was great to have this farm to table concept and then winter hit and nobody had any food to serve and the farm to table concept didn't work. Well, that's, that's forced our hand. We just tried to look at all the products and figure out ways to keep them on the menu and fermentation is the answer, you know? So keeping our sourcing ethos forced our hand to start fermentation. And then that just essentially Ryan Sylvester and Kia Gray just went so far down this rabbit hole into experimentation that the fava beans that you mentioned earlier, we were plucking fava beans to make miso with, to keep miso on the menu for a ramen, the tobanjan that we make in house with Palisade chilies, you know, to keep on the menu through the winter, which is totally not Colorado cuisine. And I, you know, I'll be the first to say absolutely not, but it's using Colorado ingredients and traditional technique to be able to create a, a recognizable dish, you know, for anybody, not for a foodie, but for anybody that happens to find themselves in downtown Grand Junction looking for lunch. Yeah, technique can drive the relevance of cultural, big air quotes, cultural cuisine as well. And I think that we're in a modern food culture and the fact that we can be inspired by miso, yet using techniques that are cultivated locally with local ingredients why can't that be an expression of of what it means to be colorado you know i think well, yeah. that's i think that's very valuable uh, we we can absolutely absolutely do that and so you guys are taking the inspiration from the farm and the inspiration from techniques old world and new world across asia or you know pantries in scandinavia dug into the side of the mountain and bringing those together it, the confluence of them they're they're convergent versus divergent they're not fusion i used to call it pangean it's like we're bringing the continent back together versus like fusing two things together that maybe don't need to be there uh i love the thoughtfulness of it that's something that's that's very apparent and yeah you guys are like mad scientists i love it because that's what we do at the brood food lab is like what's the craziest shit we can come up with and let's <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and we even have another layer of freedom. It's like we don't have to make food cost or, or people's like salaries are based on our ability to actually sell food. So we're like, let's see how many ways we can fuck it up to understand the thresholds of it. And that's your commitment to that is key because usually experimentation is very limited because you need to sell through that. And you guys are committed to like, we want to sell everything because we want to be good stewards of the land and the products and we have a business to run but we can push it a little bit further because we're committed to long-term long-term with our people long-term with our guests long-term with our food. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And you know, I'll, I'll go back and I'll lay that right back into labor costs too, to answer that question is, you know, how, how have I been lucky enough to be able to keep a team as strong as I have for as long as I have. And that is to be able to invest in these things to help keep people's interest, regardless of what the turnout is. If the turnout's great, fantastic. If the turnout's not, eh, so what? We tried, but I'll tell you what, the people that were working on that project were excited to be doing it. They'd probably rather be doing that than doing something else, you know, for that instantaneous profit somewhere else. So, you know, not everything we've done has worked. And then of course, you know, coming up against tacit plans and, and changes in, in food health laws and whatnot, kind of forced our hands on some of the things we were doing 
but so what? Well, you know, that's just maybe that one technique or that one outcome of that crop. There's the possibilities are endless. Yeah. And I would say it has worked even in the small things that quote unquote didn't work. It's the long game. You're playing a long game and you're investing for what happens next as well. And I think that's really, really smart. I think the restaurant industry, one of the struggles we have is how short term we think sometimes because our, our gratification is so instantaneous. I think of an idea, I make a dish, I make it once, we sell it as a special, it sells and the loop closes, right? So we're yep. only thinking that far ahead myself included for a long, long time, which is why I forced myself to think about way down the road with these fermentation projects is because that's hard for cooks and restaurant people. We're thinking about like, there's something to the, you're only as good as your last plate thinking about the next plate. But what happens when you think about 500 plates from now, 2000 plates from now, a million plates from now, because that's the only way that you're going to sustain and, we don't think about that enough. And, you know, it shows itself in how many 65 year old line cooks are about to retire. We're not creating sustainable lifestyles for ourselves. And so I, I appreciate you and Jody and the whole team for thinking about it that way, because that's a, a model that we can try. And I know you're still evolving it, but it has to start from a nucleus of that level of thoughtfulness into the future. So that is why I was really excited to talk to you, my friend. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, and, well, you know, I wanna... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you know, ultimately, I think you're exactly right. That 500 plate into the future thing, you know, on, on our end, we haven't really talked about it at all, but on our end, that ultimately turned into what Taco Party is. And I hope that in 10 years from now, we'll be talking about Taco Party the same way that, you know, Ben 707 Food Bar has been able to create and keep relevance. Love it. And so we already said Bin 707 Food Bar opens seven days a week, lunch and dinner. Tell me about Taco Party, dinner party, when people can come and enjoy those two experiences. It's taco Party's quick service taco shop, Colorado source, Colorado inspired, Colorado cuisine to the T. I mean, from the blue corn tortilla that we're using, we created a backwards distribution channel to to use Colorado corn, turn into next them all here by a tortilla company that was the closest to us to be able to provide us a, you know, such a beautiful tor tortilla to build those tacos on. Uh, we're serving they're, those. They're damn good. Let, let me jump in and say they're damn good. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. hundred percent. You can, yeah, you can they're the real deal. You can, still, you can still taste the corn. Yeah. And that's the idea. They're just made out of corn, nothing else. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, we're doing five days a week. Uh, lunch and dinner Tuesday through Saturday night. Um, and uh, like I said, quick service, just super casual, uh, low key, but unlike any other taco shop that I'm familiar with, uh, especially in Colorado. And then dinner party is our sort of incubator. Uh, we do private events, host events, pop-ups, beer dinners, wine dinners, whatever. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an extension of ideas that we have and a way to put them into use so we host an events and um you know a couple times a year or at least a couple times a quarter we'll advertise an event or two that we'll do so keep stay tuned for one of those love it we'll have links to uh, your social media to your websites all that so people can get down with you the next time they're in grand junction or now they're thinking about making a special trip to grand junction people are going to start flying 
from out of state to Grand Junction to go ski versus flying to Denver. That'd be smart too. <laughs> you know, it'd be smart too, man. I'll tell you I, what, I'm as far away from Vail as you are and there's no passes and no traffic and very rarely is there even snow on the ground. So by the time, wow. uh, by the time we're listening to this, I'm sure it's going to be cold everywhere and I'll probably still be out riding my bike. I'm uh, I'm on your side, man. I am uh, uh, rooting, rooting for us flipping as many scripts as possible. That one included for sure. So I want to leave everybody with a quote that you gave me that I love by Salvador Dali. Have no fear of perfection. You'll never reach it. What does that mean, man? Uh, that's, you know, there's always going to be another plate. You may only be as good as the last one. But it doesn't matter if the last one wasn't right because we're still going to be working towards making the next one better. Investing in the future, man. Striving, striving. Joshua Nurmer, That's right. thank you, Chef, for being on the show. Appreciate you. And I'm sure everybody enjoyed listening to this. A lot of nuggets of wisdom in there and inspiring stuff, my friend. Uh, thank you, Jensen. I appreciate what you're doing and, and keep at it. Thank you. So we've been talking to Josh Nuremberg. Great guy, great chef, great restaurateur, visionary. And he was gracious enough to call out a few people that have impacted him throughout the years. And I'm honored and excited to be talking to Ryan Sylvester, somebody that I've gotten to work alongside, seen his passion, dedication, focus, attention to detail, great fucking palate. Ryan, thanks for hopping on the line and talking to us a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, so he's called out you, called out... Danielle Hinrichs, a.k.a. D, Kea Gray, a.k.a. Kea, and then Miles Blackford, a.k.a. The Wizard. I love how everyone's got a nickname moniker. You guys are like a bunch of fucking superheroes, which is super great. And for you specifically, I'm interested in finding just a little bit about your background and then dig into like what it means to have such a strong team continuity for so many years because that is not the norm. And I'm sure there's challenges to that, but man, is the upside clear having seen all of you in action. So just quickly tell us, where were you born? Uh, I was born in Crested Butte, Colorado. Lovely little ski town. Yeah, Um, raised out there too? Yeah, yeah, raised entirely in the Gunnison Valley. You know, we moved up Valley in the mid-90s. But yeah, you know, my... uh, Dad was a went there to be a ski bum and carpenter, and my mom started a restaurant uh, the year I was born. So you could you were literally bored into when this. I huh? started cooking. Well, started. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but you know, um, I leaving high school swore that I would not cook and that I would not do carpentry, and then that's exactly what I ended up doing with my life. So. Of course, the best laid plans. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so usually we, we, uh, we would ask uh, with great anticipation what your first job in the industry was, but pretty clear, I'm sure you were peeling potatoes when you were five years old and stuff. So that's super interesting, born into it. I, I can really relate to that, being that my family has been in the restaurant industry for five consecutive generations. We opened our first restaurant in 1900 in Little Falls, yep. Minnesota, and we've been at it ever since. So it's interesting where there's this exactly that. Like, you're like, ah, man, I want to do something else. Like my family's been in this game too long. And at the same time, 
you also don't get those, hey, when are you going to get a real job from your family and friends? Because they're like, you guys have been at it forever. So it's, it's, it was a practical idea as well. So I can definitely, definitely relate to that. And what type of restaurant was it that you guys were doing? Uh, she owned an Italian restaurant and, you know, she will still never really honor the hard work that she put in. But, you know, for 17 years, she raised three kids, would go to the restaurant, bake all the bread, do all the prep work, come back, make dinner for us kids, get us settled, then return to the restaurant and, you know, run front of the house and play GM. And, you know, I learned everything about the restaurant industry kind of post haste from that. It was just what we grew up in. It's just how we lived. Um, and yeah, we, all of us kids, we bust tables and poured waters and did dishes and did all those things that child labor laws are probably trying to prevent us from doing, but you know, this is what we did as a family. So <laughs> I love hearing that. And what's, what's your mother's name? We want to give her a shout out. Cause those are the kind of unsung hospitality heroes that need to be celebrated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, her name is Kiffany with a K, K-I-F-F-A-N-I. Great name, Kiffany. You, you did all right. Way she to go. Great. I love hearing that. All right, so then you are a legacy, right? You were born into this, literally born into this, and, uh, and then progressed through your career. And I think I'm very fascinated in how you first connected with Josh, and kind of that origin of that piece. And then we'll talk a little bit about kind of how you guys run the show day to day and what that evolution has been like. So where, where did your story with Josh specifically start out? Yeah, sure. Well, I'll, I'll fill in a couple other details with that. Then left the Gunnison Valley, went to Denver, um, you know, fell into cooking. And when I got into other restaurants, I just, you know, refamiliarized myself with being in kitchens and just absolutely fell head over heels for cooking and then just grounded out in Denver for, you know, five years. I worked at Carmine's on Penn and then um, ended up connecting with Jamie Fader uh, back when Lola was on Old South Pearl and then followed him and crew over to uh, the new and current location that it's still at. And during that time, spent a little bit of time with Jack's Fish House um, you know, kind of knew that old crew from Denver that is still around and still doing, you know, amazing things. And, um, and then somewhere in there, 2006, 2007, uh, fell in love with my current wife and we wanted to get out of the city and start a family. So we just kind of drove around the state and we found the beautiful little town of Paonia and said, this sounds good. And at that time I said, I'm done done cooking, done with the industry. I'll never go back. <laughs> and uh, Famous last words. Yep. We've all heard yep, that. Yep. And, uh, and then when we, when we moved to Paonia, my wife started working at uh, these organic farms and she was just bringing home the best produce that I'd ever had in my life. And, you know, we were pretty poor. And so we started preserving a lot of food and, you know, canning and pickling and doing all that stuff. Um, just to make use out of whatever we could get. And in doing that, totally just kind of reinvigorated my love for cooking. Um, and at that time I was welding and doing carpentry and reading cookbooks nonstop. And so finally I consented and just opened a traveling yakitori cart for a summer. That seems like the natural transition, right? Yep. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> and so I was up in Telluride and I was doing these, uh, you know, grilled shishito peppers. And I kept having people coming up to me and going, oh, you know, I just had shishito peppers over at this restaurant in Grand Junction. And I was scratching my head going, who else in Western Colorado is serving shishito peppers? This was back when shishito peppers hadn't quite hit every menu out there. Um, they were they they were still in hiding like kale 10 years before that yep yep <laughs> understood <laughs> understood <laughs> they're still great still great but yeah it was kind of before the the shishito trend hit hard so i um the yakitori cart was just a summer seasonal thing and when that was over i drove over to grand junction and applied to work there and you know, for the first year, I was commuting from Paonia to Junction. And as soon as I started working in the kitchen here, I just, I was loving it. And at, in the beginning, I didn't really connect with Josh as all that much. But, you know, here and there, as we started having conversations, we realized that our time in Denver, we crossed a lot of the same paths. Um, There's probably many nights we were at the same bar and didn't even know it. But, you know, we we know a lot of the same people and know a lot about that industry in Denver. And, um, and then, yeah, from there, you know, when I, when I came to Josh, I, I'd done the line cooking thing and I just said, you know, I, I'm really interested in learning the business. If I ever want to have my own place or whatever, I just, I want to know how to run a successful business. So, you know, teach me everything, teach me all the administrative stuff. Um, you know, all the human resource stuff, just how to do all that, <laughs> you know, kind of unglamorous type cook work. And, um, and yeah, I really most cooks, most cooks really it. don't want that. I mean, most cooks, yeah. you know, having to input invoices as a junior sous chef, you might as well be cutting their fucking eyes out of their heads. Like it's painful. So I'm sure that was uh, a breath of fresh air for Josh hearing somebody that, that cared enough to want to know kind of the business side and actually had an aptitude for it and i'm sure that that laid some serious groundwork for kind of what came next because trust is is a reoccurring theme in a lot of the conversations that i had like building that trust is is tough and so for chef and owner to be able to trust you that there has to be some some motivation scene versus you just begrudgingly doing a job because your job title dictates it so right. that, i mean that was meaningful talk a little bit more about that from a trust standpoint you're practically applying that, but what does it mean that as far as developing your relationship in that context? Uh, um, well, I think like anything, you know, as, um, as an employee, you're trying to, uh, you know, prove yourself. Um, certainly, um, you know, you want to have the, the good blessing of your, your boss and chef as you progress on. Um, so, you know, the thing that I work hardest at in what I try and teach the other sous chefs and managers and um, employees all across the board is just communication. And, you know, for Josh and I, my first priority was always to be able to try and communicate really clearly, whether it be, you know, my goals, this is where I'm at, this is what I want to achieve, um, or, hey, I see a problem with this, what do you think? And, you know, for him and I, just, it just was never an issue. It always came very naturally. And, you know, for me, it was always rewarding that my input mattered to him. 
And if I said, hey, we're doing this thing, I know you've been doing it this way for a while, but I think if we tried this, it could work better. And, you know, sometimes that didn't change a thing, but at least we were having conversations about that. And that spurred a lot of innovation and ideas between us. And as that trust grew, you know, I, I gained more anonymity within the company so that if I had an idea or something, I could, you know, pitch it to him and he'd say, yeah, go for it, you know, and um, that's been huge, you know, that, that gives me a, a great sense of uh, pride and, you know, strong sense of place of where I belong. Yeah, it seems clear, it, it seems clear so. that 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 is fundamental to why you two have been successful together and why you've laid the groundwork is that trust is that voice being heard is some of that freedom, you know, to, to make mistakes, to have those micro failures for the opportunity for those macro successes. And so I'm, I'm fascinated in that dynamic and I've seen that at play and I'd like to give everyone listening just a little bit more context that you have, now, some of these, these other unsung heroes in your team that we talked about at the beginning that have just been absolutely dynamic and working for you guys for so long. Talk now that you're kind of in the position of leading them a little bit. What are those interactions like for you trying to lay the groundwork of trust with them to give us a sense of how that was instilled and passed on with Josh and your interaction and now how you're trying to to develop that with kind of who comes next. Yeah. Geez. You know, I mean, it's, again, it kind of just comes back to that communication piece. So, and I'm not, I, I have so long to go in that area, but you know, it's exactly what I try and then do with my, uh, with the team that we work with is just, um, develop that rapport. Um, you know, I guess in the, the nuts and bolts of it, you know, for instance, I write the schedule for both restaurants, bin and taco party, but I'm not necessarily always in the kitchen. So I rely greatly on those guys to give me the feedback on the performance of other cooks and who's doing what and what the problems are. So, you know, it becomes a part of our, uh, daily correspondence, whether it be through uh, messages or just, you know, checking in with them in the restaurant to say, how are things going? Um, you know, how are people doing? And then working with them, you know, as problems come up to kind of say, okay, like, what is your solution to this? You know, and then how do you see following through that on that, you know, until it's completion and, um, I try very hard to encourage uh, the staff, the managers to make mistakes. <laughs> I think a lot of time people expect to just bat a hundred or, you know, and I, I think that just leads to um, a lot of ineffectiveness. So I try and encourage them all the time that, you know, if they see something that they want to fix or try and do to, you know, sink their teeth into it and go for it. And if it's a mistake, then just, back off and let's talk about it see how we can you know correct it and yeah, I think that's, in that's doing a refreshing that, we all a refreshing approach i think i mean you mentioned batting average if you fail in baseball seven out of ten times at the plate you're in the hall of fame you know, yeah we don't think right? about it in that in that context but that's the truth and and i'd like to hear something very practical i think so many people listening are you know line cooks 
dredging along and feeling like maybe they don't have a voice and the communication might not be where they want it to be and they're they don't understand the why so much and i love love that you guys are all in you are pot committed to that part of the relationship and the interaction tell us specifically something about about d about kia about the wizard miles that they do really really well that's just like refreshing for you to go i know i can count on them a thousand percent on this what are a couple of very specific practical things that oh, you man. rely on them for yeah god it's it's hard to distill that down um, but i'll do my best um danielle is she's just a powerhouse she's so reliable so dependent she's uh been at this restaurant since the beginning um you know in terms of dependability i mean anytime anything goes wrong she's there um she she really commands the kitchen um makes sure that all the other cooks are doing their job and you know like i said with so much of the administrative work that i do um doing events away from the restaurant with josh we couldn't do that without knowing that d is there um yeah i tried that bedrock, huh? yeah <laughs> i try my best and i could probably do just so much a better job of it but i, I try so hard to just remind her all the time that like we we couldn't do this without her um she's such she's just trying to give more details but honestly she's just the rock she's the glue that kind of keeps it all together and then um kia is um god he is just this like he's an artist he went to art school you should see the stuff that he creates and then you take that this just wildly creative mind and you put him in the kitchen and he also has this like structural um sort of he's so methodical in what he does he runs our entire production line so he does all the prep day in and day out and for anybody who's worked production knows that battle to prioritize the list of stuff that you got to get done in that day and he does it better than you know anybody that i've seen you know from all the stuff of keeping the walk-in the dry storage organized, putting away the orders, and then just cranking stuff out. And now most recently, I didn't really know this, but apparently he is this incredible baker. So he's doing these sourdough loaves that he is taking seasonal ingredients like beets and peaches and juicing them, feeding that into his starter, and then baking loaves. And it was like I walked out of the kitchen one day and I came back the next and all of a sudden we've got this artisan sourdough bread maker and he's, he carves all these beautiful de designs into the top um, so that when they spring and those little ears develop, it's, you know, they're work works of art. Go figure. Yeah. Um, you know, you and I being yeah. such uh, fermentation nerds, that's like a whole other podcast is just the development of that. I think, uh, I think, yeah, Josh had a lot to say about that as far as like, Kia just being a the balance between like workhorse and artist is un, unheard of. You know, usually you have yeah. one or the other being super practical or super artistic in, in the yeah. line between the two. Now, Miles, I'm super interested in because I mean he started, you know, as a as a 
prep guy, right? And he was in the kitchen and now he's the GM of Bin. So what's something that you see Miles just just fucking nailing where you're like, that's why he is leading the front of house for us? Miles, um, because Miles is in front of the house and because of the, just kind of how I've, my growth here, you know, I, it wasn't until this last couple of years that I really began to work with Miles more. Um, and, and Miles is such a blessing to have in the restaurant. You know, we all know how restaurants can be. They are incredibly stressful and it can be so difficult to keep that even keel. And Miles, he is that a hundred percent. I mean, you know how front of house work is, you know how customers can be, um, you know, writing schedules, especially when half your staff is college students, you know, I don't envy his position one bit and he holds it together better than, um, you know, so many people that I've ever had the chance to work with. And, you know, you got to have that grace, right. To be able to handle that and composure to be able to communicate to a kitchen staff, which speaks one language to a service staff, which speaks another language. And then to guests with their potentially speaking a completely different language. So you got to be a master communicator Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, I love, I love working with miles when we're talking about because of his relationship with the guests, which he does such a great job with. He remembers all our regulars that come in. So whenever we're talking menu development or, um, you know, kind of dissecting a dish to see what's working and what's not, I always grab him to bring him into the conversation because I, I want his opinion. I think he's got that perspective the guest perspective to help guide us a bit and in the last couple years it's been great to work on that with him oh that's so good because you can get so tunnel visioned and get into your own creativity and forget about you know your guest i mean there is there is an end user to the product we're producing and we got to remember that for sure all right this has been really really great i want one goofy little tidbit about josh what is something that everyone cracks a joke about in the kitchen, in the restaurant, what is some goofy thing that Josh does that can uh, humanize him a little bit for us? Tell, give us one little uh, Joshism. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Come on, man! Come on, Ryan! We're counting on you here. Uh, um, I'm gonna try. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm going to preface this by just saying I get it, and as I grow in my career i'm gonna be doing the same thing but josh has a way of when he 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 says okay like this thing was supposed to be x and now it's not in that condition and he'll be like we we just talked about this and we'll all kind of be like no i don't think we did (laughs) i think it's like classic chef owner's syndrome where they're juggling so many balls and sometimes they don't know if they said it out loud or not and so, it, was a, it was a conversation they had to themselves. Yeah, probably. It was a probably. dream he had. So yeah. we all try and, I think, find creative ways to kind of be like, I don't think we actually talked about that. <laughs> that's, that is perfect. That is exactly yeah. the kind of thing. And, that's, and that's, the, uh, that's the kind of trust and banter that you have. That's why that is so important, that, uh, that they trust you enough to be able to call them out on that 
and know that they're juggling a lot of balls and you're there to support. So I think that level of support, that level of trust and communication is clearly on display. Ryan, appreciate you talking to us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your passion, your team, and everyone needs to get their ass out to Grand Junction to Ben 707 and, and Taco Party. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jensen. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.